in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be hearing how clocks can be used to measure gravity. And woes for wind farms. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Listeners, if you were to ask my friends what my timekeeping is like, they would happily tell you that it is terrible. The old phrase, he'd be late for his own funeral, pretty much sums up my ability to meet someone when I say I will. But apparently, I'm not the only one who needs to improve their timekeeping. Being able to accurately tell the time is really important for loads of technologies. Here's Andrew Ludlow from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US with a few examples. I think some of the more ubiquitous examples are like navigational systems and communication systems often require very stringent timing requirements. You know, global navigation satellite systems basically exploit uh, atomic clocks um, on board satellites and distributing those timing signals in order to deduce relative position. The ability to kind of keep time very well enables, you know, other types of, of technologies as well. In this week's Nature, Andrew and his colleagues describe a pair of atomic clocks that keep time with astonishing accuracy. They even suggest that these clocks could, in the future, not just be used to measure time, but to measure the strength of gravity on different parts of the Earth. But more on that in a bit. First, let's talk about atomic clocks. Rather than relying on the swinging of a pendulum to count the passing of time, atomic clocks use something else. Here, the time base uh, really is the atom. Mostly, it's uh, electronic oscillations in an atom. And it turns out that, you know, nature has given us some atoms in particular who uh, give us extremely stable oscillations where they don't change for many reasons. They're quite fixed in time and therefore they can be very good at making an atomic clock. Andrew's clocks are optical lattice clocks, considered to be the next generation of atomic clocks, and in this case use atoms of the element ytterbium. By using a finely tuned laser, it's possible to excite electrons within these ytterbium atoms into a different energy state. By measuring the oscillations in the electrons as they move between these states, it's possible to measure the passage of time. And these transitions happen very, very quickly. It's at about 518 terahertz, and so that's 5 times 10 to the 14 times per second. And I should say that that's a big number, and that's one of the reasons why it's useful for a clock is each oscillation is dividing time up into extremely fine intervals. And so that that gives us a lot of precision in trying to make measurements of time. Andrew and his colleagues have been working on their clocks for a few years now, trying to hone the mechanisms and get them to work as accurately as possible. This is what they've detailed in their new paper. We showed that we were able to make big advances in the three most important figures of merit for for atomic clocks. So these are called systematic uncertainty, instability, and and reproducibility. And um, basically each one of these three are important details that determine how good these clocks are, how useful they are. At the end of the day, all of them together 
um, contribute to what you might consider as accuracy, how accurate is the clock. And so we were able to show advances in, in each one of these areas, ultimately showing that these systems are capable of making measurements at the level of you know one part in 10 to the 18 or even better than that. So when it comes to measurements, the team are working to 18 digits of precision. But what can these clocks be used for? In the article, we highlighted especially one application that um, there's been a fair bit of anticipation uh, for these clocks being useful for, and this is what's kind of being known as relativistic geodesy. Relativistic geodesy is the idea that you can use a pair of atomic clocks to measure the gravitational strength of a particular location. As you move further away from the centre of the Earth, gravitational strength decreases. So the strength of gravity on top of a mountain is less than it is at sea level, for example. And this change in the strength of gravity does some peculiar things to time, put forward by Einstein in his theory of general relativity. To put it very simply, as gravity's strength decreases, time moves faster, although the effects seen here on Earth are very subtle. However, if you were to have, say, a pair of super-accurate optical lattice clocks, you could in principle send one up a mountain and leave one at sea level. By measuring the tiny differences in the ticking rate of the clocks, you could get a super-accurate measurement of the gravitational strength at the different locations. As well as being able to tell you things like precisely how high a mountain is above sea level, Andrew thinks there could be other benefits to these new measurements. In its first go, it will improve geodetic models, the, you know, the, the models that say what the gravitational shape of the Earth is. And then ultimately those models uh, could have impact in a lot of different areas, including uh, surveying, including water and ice flow that could be related to, to climate studies. There's really a handful of reasons why these models are used quite extensively now. While this all might seem a little hypothetical at the moment, efforts to send optical clocks out into the field have been made. You might remember, for instance, us talking here on the podcast about a group who sent an optical lattice clock into the Alps here in Europe. Andrew's clocks aren't ready to go anywhere just yet. While that might prevent them being used to measure gravitational strength at different locations, he says there are plenty of things they can be used for in the meantime. We're using these clocks right now in the lab to try to uh, look for new physics, to better understand our universe. And the idea is pretty straightforward. If you have a device that's able to measure some quantity out to 18 digits, it's sensitive to, to very subtle effects. And basically, as these clocks keep getting better and better, they become more sensitive probes for exploring these new physics and kind of constraining the possibility of deviations from the existing physical theories that we have. That was Andrew Ludlow. You can read his paper over at nature.com slash nature. Later in the show, Flora Graham will be coming by to tell us about the latest lander to touch down on Mars. That's coming up in the news chat Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, brought to you this week by Ali Jennings. If you'd been wandering the Siberian steppes late in the last ice age, you might have seen a unicorn. Though on closer inspection, you would have discovered that it was in fact a three and a half ton longhorned rhinoceros. It was originally thought that this so-called Siberian unicorn died out about 200,000 years ago. But now, a team from the Natural History Museum in London have updated that extinction estimate. 
They used radiocarbon dating on the remains of 23 specimens to show that the youngest had died only 36,000 years ago, around about the time that a certain Homo sapiens arrived in the area. But humans probably weren't responsible for the unicorn's disappearance. The authors note that the massive mammal was a specialised grazer, so its demise was more likely down to climatic shifts that affected its habitat. You can track that study down in Nature Ecology and Evolution. For people with spinal cord injuries, breathing problems are the leading cause of disability and death. This is because the nerves controlling breathing can be severed after injury. If treatment is applied soon after the trauma, the nerves can be helped to regrow. But restoring nerve function after long-term injury has so far proven elusive because scar tissue grows across the severed nerve endings, stopping their regeneration. Now, a study has worked out a way around this problem, in rats with long-term spinal injury. They injected an enzyme into the rat's spines that broke down the built-up scar tissue. The nerves started sprouting, and over time, the rats regained almost complete control of their breathing, control that still lasted six months after treatment find that reinvigorating research over at Nature Communications. Next up, Noah Baker has been getting to grips with wind wakes. As a wind turbine spins, huge rotors extract energy from the passing breeze. So you can imagine a stick with a big circle spinning on top, and that circle is inscribed by the wind turbine blades. As the wind enters that disk, then energy from the wind, or momentum from the wind, is extracted. That's Julie Lundquist from the University of Colorado, Boulder. The wind energy is converted into electricity and pumped to hungry, green-conscious customers. But that's not the whole story. You see, the wind which drove the turbine doesn't just stop when it hits the blades. It continues on but with less energy and riddled with turbulence. And if you want to think about a metaphor for this, you can think about water in a stream flowing past a rock. The, the stream flow is faster upstream of the rock, and when you look downstream from the rock, it's ten, it tends to be slower, and it also tends to be more turbulent. And the same thing happens in the wind turbine wake as well. This wake can have all kinds of impacts. The turbulent air can cause strain and damage to other turbines in a farm, and the reduced wind speed can lead to a reduction in energy extraction. As a result, the wakes of wind turbines have been widely studied to try to mitigate these impacts. Julie too is interested in wind wakes, but she's been looking on a broader scale. So when you have a lot of wind turbines built together into a wind farm, you can imagine that those individual wakes from those individual wind turbines all merge together into one larger, more complicated wind farm wake. Julie turned her attention to publicly available data from two nearby wind farms in Texas on the hunt for wind farm wake effects. First, we needed two wind farms that were in close proximity to each other so that they could interact. So we needed an upstream farm and a downstream farm. We highlighted the Texas one in our paper because Texas is the state in the United States that has the highest production of electricity from, from wind. Now, Julie is an atmospheric scientist in an interdisciplinary team. While she and one of her students were simulating the atmospheric dynamics of the wind farm wakes, others started looking at the numbers specifically the cold hard variety, cash. 
Dan Caffeine, the economist on the project, we were hoping that he would be able to find evidence of the economic impacts of the wakes. So he did a very clever analysis that showed that the presence of the upwind wind farm had a discernible and statistically significant economic impact on the downwind wind farm. The losses are not insignificant. In fact, the economic models suggest that over four years, the downstream wind farm had lost revenue of about $3.7 million, with an error of about $2.4 million. In other words, best case scenario, that's about a $1.3 million loss. Worst case scenario, that's about a $6.1 million loss. So remember that this is a predictive model and these are estimates, but that is pretty significant. It's perhaps unsurprising then with numbers like this that Julie and her team wanted to delve into the laws and regulations surrounding wind farm wakes. After all, businesses have bottom lines and they tend to like to protect them. But the team were surprised by just how few rights people have with respect to wind wakes. Here's KK Duvivier from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. There is a real question whether you have any ownership right in the energy in the wind. KK thinks that wind has been overlooked by policymakers quite literally because it's invisible. But wind is also a difficult thing to litigate. For example, is wind energy a public or private resource? Um, in some countries, the wind is definitely a public resource. In the United States, it's not quite so clear. Um, you know, when the wind is passing over your land, presumably you have the right to get whatever you can of what is passing over your land, but there is a question in the law about whether you own anything before it hits your boundary line. Some states like Texas, which is our number one wind state, that's a state where you can own the wind separately from the land surface. And you, an individual, can own it, so it's not really considered public property. Things get even trickier when you take into account the distances that Julia's calculated wakes could have an impact over. So, you know, we have worst-case scenarios where these wakes can extend 50 kilometres downwind. Now, these worst-case scenario conditions only occur something like 4% of the time. But in those situations, 50 kilometres could start taking you across state lines, where there are different laws. And given that in the USA, the vast majority of wind farms are within 40 kilometres of another wind farm, these small likelihoods could actually have very real impacts. KK and Julie both hope that some form of policy may come into play to help solve the problems of waking. But KK doesn't think that the way to do that is through protecting individual farms' rights. Instead, she took inspiration from another industry, wind's dirty cousin, oil. They created something called pooling or unitization so that the spacing of the oil wells had to depend on what was best for getting the most resource out of a particular pool rather than what one property or another might benefit more from. So I would recommend something like that for wind to try to look at the whole area, figure out the best spacing to maximize the recovery from the whole area, and then, you know, have that be controlling rather than each one trying to maximize what their own farm could produce at the cost of another wind farm. For any such law to come into play, though, much more work will need to be done on the impacts of wakes in different landscapes or with different turbine designs and atmospheric conditions. So for now, it's unclear if wind wakes will make their way into law at any point soon. Julie, for one, was unwilling to make any predictions. I think you're asking me to make a forecast. And, you know, doing a weather forecast is hard enough as it is. I don't think I would even attempt to make a political forecast.
That was Julie Lundquist from the University of Colorado, Boulder. Before her, you heard K.K. Duvivier from the University of Denver. You can read K.K. and Julie's paper in Nature Energy. Head over to nature.com forward slash nenergy to get your mitts on it. Listeners, it's the final part of the show, which is, of course, the news chat. Joining me in the studio today is Flora Graham, Senior Editor of The Nature Briefing. Hi, Flora. Hi, thanks for having me. For our first story today, Flora, let's talk about, well, quite a late-breaking story, actually, and one that's uh, caused a a lot of discussion across the world. Uh, What's been going on? Yeah, well, a researcher in China claims that two healthy babies, twin girls, have been born after being gene-edited as a single-celled embryo. So previously, embryos have been edited, but only for research. They've never, ever been implanted as a pregnancy and actually become healthy living babies. Lots of ethical chats unpicked there. But before we do, maybe, I mean, uh, this is obviously a big, big science story. Where, where has it been published? That's the thing. It hasn't been published anywhere. It hasn't been peer reviewed. This is um, one fellow's claims. He's put up a lot of YouTube videos and things about it. But really, this is just kind of promotional stuff. So we really don't know if this genuinely happened or not. Well, Flora, what's he claiming to have done? Well, this researcher, He Jiang Kui, says that just after this embryo was fertilized, he used CRISPR gene editing to change a gene that's involved in HIV infection. It's called the CCR5 gene. And the idea is that he's given these children a mutation that does occur naturally in some of the population, which makes them less likely to be infected with HIV. And uh, and what are scientists saying? Well, there are a lot of questions swirling around this. The first is, did this actually happen? So even if the editing took place, as this researcher he describes, there's a question about whether the mutation did take hold in the children's DNA as they developed and after they were born and that that now they have this uniform um, set of cells in their body. We do have uh, some scientists who've looked at uh, some documents that were associated with the research and they say that the data does seem to be consistent with the fact that the gene editing did actually take place. But I guess we need independent review to to make sure. Absolutely. We haven't seen a paper. We haven't seen the in-depth data. These are documents that were filed with the um, administrative bodies in China and were dug up by journalists as far as I understand. And what about the ethics of the thing then, right? Because this this does seem like a it's, a it's a heck of a topic. There's a lot to unpick here. I think the first and foremost is gene editing, an embryo. This is something that's not even legal in a lot of countries. The reasoning being is because once you've edited a person's genome, that can then be passed on to any potential offspring. So they call that editing the germline. This is something that so far we absolutely have not agreed internationally about whether this is even a good idea. There absolutely is gene editing, but it's normally for people who are adults or they're already um, older, and this is not something that would be then passed on to their offspring. Well, one of the ethical issues that seems to be going on here is that this isn't a treatment, it's a prevention. That's right. A lot of ethicists and scientists are questioning why edit a child's DNA for a preventative reason? I mean, there's no guarantee that these children are going to be at risk of HIV in future. I think there's a lot stronger argument amongst people saying this could save the life of a child who's at imminent risk of severe suffering or death from a genetic disorder. But in this case, there's no question that they wouldn't have necessarily been born healthy without any gene editing. Now, what kind of adds interest to this story is in this case, the girl's father is HIV positive. 
Now there's no huge risk that they would become infected from the father. A lot of scientists told us there are safe and effective ways to prevent transmission between the parent and the child. It's more that the family feels emotionally that they are very concerned that their kids could in future be infected with HIV and subject to a lot of the intense discrimination, particularly in China, against people who are HIV positive. So what happens next then, Flora? I mean, where do we go from here? Well, the timing of this is interesting because we're just about to open a major international meeting in Hong Kong on genome editing where scientists and ethicists are coming together to talk about this very type of thing. The fact that this researcher, he has chosen to announce his claim in such an unconventional way just on the eve of this conference, I think raises almost more questions than answers. Yes, and listeners, this is a sort of a developing story. So, uh, you know, head over to nature.com slash news to see any more updates as and, as and when they occur. But for now, let's move over to our second story for today, then, Flora. And, uh, and we're going to take a visit to the Red Planet. Yes, we were all glued to our live feeds and Twitter streams on Monday when NASA's InSight lander successfully made its touchdown on the Red Planet. An- well, an- another lander, which is obviously very exciting. What, what's, uh, what's this one going to do? Well, this one's going to be peering inside Mars. It's going to be trying to detect tiny tremors, tiny Mars quakes, we're calling them. And hopefully those seismic readings will reveal what's inside the core of the planet. Wow. I mean, why would we want to know necessarily what's inside the core of the planet then? This is going to tell us about how planets in the solar system developed, um, how they came together. And no doubt it's going to reveal things which will help us understand Earth better as well. Well, as I understand it, the last lander we sent to Mars didn't necessarily go as well as planned. Um, how did this one sort of successfully make it down to the planet's surface? Right. Well, landing on Mars is notoriously difficult. In this case, NASA chose a, a pretty well understood landing method. So no sky cranes or giant bubbles or anything weird this time. The lander dropped off uh, the spacecraft. It had a heat shield. It dropped through Mars as a very thin atmosphere. Then the parachute deployed, slowed it down quite a bit. Parachute lets go. The lander then uses radar to detect the surface and kind of gently drops upon the Earth and a big cheer goes up all around. Easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> One thing that, I, that I'll say, the floor, you, and you said there that you, you, know, you managed to sort of be glued to the coverage as it was happening. How, how did you manage to do that? Often I, I think there's kind of a delay when we see you know, what's going on and there's kind of that window where everything goes dark and then it's either success or failure. Normally, one might have to wait until, let's say, another orbiting spacecraft was able to observe the successful landing, or you have to wait till the lander itself is kind of deployed its communications equipment and is able to transmit back to Earth. But in this case, two tiny satellites called CubeSats, these are the size of shoeboxes, were actually launched at the same time as InSight. They made their own way to Mars, and they actually observed the InSight landing, and they were able to communicate back to Earth almost in real time. And this is the first time a CubeSat has gone so far from the Earth. So the lander's successfully on the ground now then. Uh, how exactly is it going to be looking for these Mars quakes? Well, it's got several instruments, some extremely delicate that are being held inside vacuum chambers that have to be delicately placed onto the surface using the lander's kind of appendages. There's an amazing instrument called the heat flow probe, which is actually going to burrow five meters down into the surface of Mars, far deeper than we ever dug during the moon missions. And that's going to detect things uh, even closer to the core. Well, final question then, Flora, how long is this intrepid lander's mission going to last? Well, it's planned to work for a little more than one Martian year, which is uh, almost two Earth years. And 
the researchers say it should measure maybe up to 100 Mars quakes during that time. Brilliant. Well, we'll keep an eye out to see what it sends back. Listeners, don't forget, you can sign up for the Nature Briefing at nature.com slash briefing, where you'll get even more science news like this directly to your inbox. And that's it for this week's show. But as always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet us at Nature Podcast or send us an email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>